This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Will Inboden is the executive director of the Clements Center for National Security and associate professor of public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He earned his PhD in history from Yale University, and he has already had a distinguished career in public service, in national security, and in the academy. He served at some of the highest levels of the United States government, including tenure as the Senior Director for Strategic Planning and Institutional Reform for the National Security Council. He's also worked for the National Intelligence Council and for the historical advisory panels for both the CIA and the State Department. He's authored numerous books and written commentary and articles for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. I'm so glad today to be talking about his most recent book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. That book is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Inboden, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you, Dr. Muller. It's great to be with you. You know, uh, there are books that I think demand attention because of uh, the importance of reviewing a certain portion of history making a certain argument. There are others that take a, a fascinating personality and uh, evaluate and reevaluate. And uh, yet for me, this is the, uh, the absolute uh, crossing point, intersection of intense personal interest, personal history, world history, the, uh, the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Union, and the singular person of Ronald Reagan redefining the political landscape. How did you decide to put all that into one book? So, yeah, it was it was an evolving process. You know, it had started as a closer technical look at um, his uh, how he developed his national security strategy. But I pretty quickly realized that even though a lot of books have been written on Reagan already, that there was still it seemed a a new story to be told about uh, everything he was trying to do in the Reagan revolution in American foreign policy. And I was also concerned about a growing sense in recent years, you know, including you know, among all of us, but including younger generations, that the peaceful end of the Cold War was inevitable, um, that perhaps Reagan was just kind of lucky or played an incidental role, uh, that it was Gorbachev or structural forces uh, or you know other, other things outside of his his control that had led to you know this very happy collapse of the Soviet Union end of the Iron Curtain uh, the world being spared nuclear destruction and I just I thought boy uh, I want to recapture the central role of leadership of courageous strategic vision uh, of agency uh, of contingency in history uh, that presidents really can make a difference uh, and. I was also benefiting from quite a few new um, documents being de declassified. You know, I was one of the first scholars able to see a lot of the you know internal Reagan National Security Council memos and transcripts of his meetings with with heads of state. And so, uh, the the book in that sense really evolved over two or three years to become a you know much more ambitious undertaking as as it was as as you pointed out. You know, uh, when I first got to know you, you were writing your doctoral dissertation at Yale. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between that project and this project? Yeah, it's one of those things that I wouldn't have seen it at the time, but looking back, I can see some real continuities. And you know, as you well recall, my uh, dissertation at Yale was focused on religious influences on American foreign policy in the early Cold War years, particularly Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower being uh, big characters in that, as well as, of course, uh, John Foster Dulles. And uh, 
uh, as you know, with the Reagan book, uh, his Christian faith and the role of religion and religious liberty in his overall Cold War strategy plays a really important part of the story. And then even early influences of uh, President Eisenhower on a, a younger Ronald Reagan in the 1960s. And so I think having done that doctoral work at Yale and later published that as, a, as an earlier book, it laid the foundations just as I was looking then at the spiritual roots of the beginnings of the Cold War. This is now my effort to look at uh, the, the American strategy and Reagan's role, including the role of Christian faith in the in the peaceful end of the Cold War. So there's a nice bookend between those two uh, those two projects, even if I hadn't planned it originally in yeah. that way. Well, you know, uh, the layout of uh, our intellectual projects are often not planned. And, mm-hmm. and that's that's a part of what makes them so timely and, and yeah. important. Um, you know, you are one of the most experienced hands in American foreign policy and national security, having served in government positions, and uh, you you uh, you know things. Let me put it that way. And and uh, you've been head of the Clement Center now for a number of years there at the University of Texas, looking at this more academically. So, why was the time right uh, in in this particular period to go back to the 1980s and look at Ronald Reagan and his presidency? Yeah, I think this is uh, the confluence of several several factors. You know, one is as you you know remember firsthand from obviously having you know lived through the Reagan years, um, it was a very controversial time. Uh, and uh, you know, he had many strong partisan critics, uh, and you know, where people you know he elicited strong reactions from a lot of people. And uh, oftentimes, I think we need to allow almost a generation or more to pass before history and historical perspective can come in, uh, where we can have a little bit, we know more how the story ends, we can have a little bit more critical distance on something. Of course, you know, I, I have my convictions and my my beliefs, right. and I certainly lay those out in the book too, and it's overall a very favorable assessment of Reagan. But I thought now might be a good time to take a fresh look at him, especially for, uh, you know, people of that generation who now have let the partisan passions cool and might be able to look at him a little more, little more objectively, particularly knowing how, how the story ends. Yeah. Um, and, and then also for the younger generation. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a professor at the University of Texas now. All my students were born well after the, the Reagan years. He's a figure in the distant past for them in the way that FDR or Teddy Roosevelt or even Lincoln might be. And I wanted to provide a fresh account that the, the new generation can take a look at. But one other angle I want to mention, too, on why it was the right time to do this, I mentioned, of course, the recently declassified uh, documents. You know, we now have a lot more access to um, what were previously, you know, top secret uh, strategy memos and transcripts of his meetings. Um, But at the same time, we are close enough to the Reagan years that quite a few people who served his administration are still alive. And so I was able to interview about 30 or 40 of them and um, sitting down with a George Schultz or a Bud McFarlane or an Ed Meese or a Colin Powell uh, and hearing their firsthand accounts. And so it's kind of that sweet spot of distant enough that it can be history, but recent enough that we can talk to people who not just live through it, but we're making that history. Yes. Well, you know, I am, uh, I'm, I'm older and uh, this is a matter of intense interest to me at every single level. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to do something and, uh, and I don't know if this is wise or not, but I'll simply put up this picture. There I am as uh, the, the leadership of a youth group for Ronald Reagan in South Florida in 1976. When amazing. He was, yes, it is amazing. Uh, look back at that kid. Uh, by the way, I still believe now what I believe then. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I was a, a, a passionate uh, advocate for and, you know, 16-year-old activist for Ronald Reagan 
in an insurgent campaign against an incumbent Republican president. And one of the reasons why to hold that up, and by the way, it was a brave crusade. And as you know, it came, it came down all the way to the convention. Um, you know, it, it, it could have gone either way, but the incumbency uh, eventually won out. But the, the reason I raise that is because I think it's important for today's folks to understand that the worldview divide, the great ideological divide over this, wasn't just between the Republicans and the Democrats. Far more importantly, it was among the Republicans, where Ronald Reagan was a pariah figure in terms of the way he understood communism, uh, the, the, the world uh, threat of communism, and, and how the United States should respond to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And this is why I you know, try to recapture that, particularly in the, the first chapter of my book on, you know, kind of the, the crisis and divisions of the 70s and how Reagan's uh, you know, worldview is, is being formed there. And, you know, we, we forget it now, but the Republican Party was deeply internally divided. You know, one camp led by Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger, which essentially saw the Soviet Union as a rival power to be managed. Right. So they weren't pro-Soviet by any means, but they they had no notion. They that saw it. Uh, it's a permanent Union, fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. The Soviet Union had been around for 60, you know, 60 some years at that point, was going to be around for another century. And we just need to acknowledge it and deal with it and manage it. And Reagan instead saw Soviet communism as a vile idea to be defeated. That's why he's got that, you know, famous line, we win, they lose, as his strategy right. in the Cold War. And looking back in hindsight, he was absolutely correct. But it was radical at the time and yes. very uh, much in disfavor with the Republican establishment. So that's why you're exactly right. It was an insurgent campaign. Yeah, I w- uh, was a teenager in South Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, the Reagan uh, candidacy was uh, just incredibly divisive. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you what, it, it, it divided along lines that now make a lot of sense. But as a, as a 16-year-old, I was trying to figure all this out. Number one, one of the big issues on the Republican side was the uh, Panama Canal. And uh, in South Florida, that resonated a little differently than perhaps in Wyoming, uh, because it, 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 was a, it was a local issue. And look, national security was just a massive reality. And uh, so I was in high school, and I can tell you what, uh, the uh, Cuban refugee families were adamantly pro-Reagan, because they believed he was the only man who actually saw what communism was, uh, the, the very thing they'd had to flee in terms of the fall of uh, of Cuba to communism. And so, you know, so many things are clear to people now that the Soviet Union is broken apart and and is no more. They were not at all clear, uh, you know, even among Republicans at the time. Ronald Reagan, actually, in hindsight, saw the issue clearly, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And this is why, you know, one of the themes of my book is taking Reagan seriously as a man of ideas, right? And and how he saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas, more than just a, a great power contest. And those ideas were between the values of the free world, especially, you know, the United States uh, being a market democracy, a belief in Judeo-Christian values, and then the ideas and values of communism, of course, a command economy, a totalitarian dictatorship, and and state-enforced atheism. Uh, and again, the, the contrast could not be more stark. And yet for a few decades up until then, American foreign policy had been predicated on kind of containing that problem of, of Soviet communism uh, and, and managing it. And, uh, and Reagan worried rightly that this was essentially consigning a large swath of the globe's population to slavery under, under, under communism. He would use, you know, that's a vivid term, but he absolutely believed it. And I think, I think he was right. Uh, and, and his his mind that was just 
both strategically foolish and and morally appalling. And and so when he spoke out so clearly in denouncing communism as a vile idea, it really inspired people who had been victims of communist tyranny. That you know, again, you know, Cubans there in South Florida, or or ones who are still living behind the Iron Curtain uh, in in the Soviet Union. And they thought, you know, finally for the first time, there's an American political leader who is giving voice to uh, voice to us and speaking on behalf of us. You know. Um- Worldview matters so much. Underlying uh, uh, understandings of history and the direction mm-hmm. of history and how history works and how individuals relate to history that it just matters mm-hmm. immensely. Yeah. And uh, Ronald Reagan took individual responsibility seriously mm-hmm. and understood that there was a great battle of ideas. And he hated uh, Soviet communism not just because it was a rival power, but because he saw it as inherently evil. Yes, yeah, uh, and he would, speak and that scared with the American establishment. Yeah, yeah. And he would speak with that moral clarity. And again, no previous American president had spoken in such stark terms. You know, right. no, I'm not saying they were all soft on communism. I don't take this, you know, Harry Truman right. would denounce communism. You know, none of them right. liked it. Right. But I don't know that any previous American president had used that word evil to describe it. And, and you know, Reagan most famously did in calling it the evil empire in the speech for the National Association of Evangelicals. But he used that term repeatedly. He called them the focus of evil in the modern world. This drove the Kremlin crazy, but it really inspired many victims of uh, yes. of Soviet communism. I feel like finally an American leader is speaking clearly about the moral stakes in this contest and is on our side, on the side of freedom, rather than accommodating right. our, our oppressors. Yeah, you know, well, you're so careful on these things, I, but I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of listeners might not kind of know the political lay of the land. So let, let me just make an argument and you come back on it. There were very few Soviet appeasers in Congress and uh, in the highest ranks of the American government during most of these decades. But there were an enormous number, indeed, at many points, a majority who saw the Soviet Union as just a fact and argued that it's a permanent fact. And uh, the United States must somehow accommodate itself to that fact and, uh, and do its best just to limit Soviet influence and uh, to, uh, to at least intervene. There were just some egregious incursions. But otherwise, um, the United States foreign policy establishment just took communism as a permanent fact. And, and Ronald Reagan just flat refused to do that. And, and thus, he scared people in his own party. You know, I, I showed that picture of the Reagan uh, uh, campaign photo from 1976. I mean, there were those in the Republican Party who took it as their sworn duty to prevent Ronald Reagan from getting anywhere close to the White House. Oh yeah, I mean they they saw him as dangerous. They they thought that he would destabilize this uh, you know carefully calibrated strategic balance and you know the coexistence of the two the two blocks. Um, uh, you know they worried that he you know might stumble into a nuclear war. I, um, so yeah, the the controversies and opposition he inspired was tremendous. But a lot of it goes back to as you were saying, he was a dissenter from the uh, the status quo from the establishment uh, viewpoint of the Soviet Union is a and Soviet. Communism is a permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. We may not like it, but we just have to accept it. We just have to deal with it. You know, this was kind of their version of of realism with a small r. But what Reagan rightly pointed out is, look, this framework of detente, it was called, you know, reducing tensions of coexisting between the two sides. the United States is losing because of that. We're, you know, losing as slowly as possible, but we are, we are still losing. And if you look over the course of the 70s, Soviet-sponsored communist uh, revolutions take place in 
you know, multiple countries across the developing world, South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Angola, Mozambique, Ethiopia, they invade Afghanistan, it's Nicaragua, Grenada, closer to home here in our hemisphere. Meanwhile, Soviet military power is increasing. And so if you were looking at the strategic balance in the Cold War in the late 70s and early 80s, the United States was losing. Uh, and too much of our foreign policy establishment was willing to accept that. They didn't like it, but they thought, all right, well, we just need to be realistic about this. We're a declining power. The Soviets are advancing. Let's just manage this and try to you know, preserve what, what territory we can. Reagan completely rejected that. He wanted to take the initiative. He saw the Soviets as more vulnerable than anyone else saw. Um, he, he had much more confidence in American values and the values of the West and the free world. Uh, and he thought that not only could you know our losing be reversed, he thought we could actually win this thing. Uh, and so in hindsight, of course, he's exactly correct. But I wrote this book because I want people to realize very few people saw that at the time, and it potentially could have gone another way. And and that that is what visionary uh, leadership is. It, it's you know to borrow from another figure that you and I hold in great uh, esteem, Churchill. Right? In hindsight, of course, we Sir Churchill was right. But that summer of 1940, it was a very close run thing, and and for him yes. to stand and there for and longer say no, than people remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, in that sense, there's, you know, and of course, Reagan revered Churchill and certainly drew inspiration from his own courage and vision. You know, uh, what you don't cover in depth in the book is uh, something I just want to kind of lay out for listeners to understand. And that is that Ronald Reagan didn't emerge from nowhere. You know, you're talking about someone with basically Midwestern values and, and small town America, who nonetheless ends up as uh you know, not the most famous actor in Hollywood, but a, a very solid uh, Hollywood reputation. And most importantly, eventually the head of the labor union for actors, the Screen Actors Guild. And the Red Scare, that's what the left calls it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the threat of communism and all the rest is swirling about. And Ronald Reagan was a man of the left politically, at least when the left was defined by Franklin Roosevelt, not, not the ideological, you know, left that was beyond uh, uh, Roosevelt, but he was, he was very much a New Deal man. And, yeah, uh, he's a New Deal Democrat. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what you see is an ideological transformation of Ronald Reagan, in which, which all of a sudden he begins to see that world communism is the great threat, that it's an ideological threat, that it has infected Hollywood, that uh, uh, the thought class in the United States has largely decided just to accommodate to it, try to limit it. And, and furthermore, as he saw, there were those who were active, active agents for it there in, in Hollywood and beyond. And uh, and so Ronald Reagan comes on the scene and uh, and starts saying things that, as I say, even the Republican Party thought were just completely out of bounds. And he talked as if it were possible that the Soviet Union might not exist. I, I just would like to have you talk about that for a moment, because that that was an unthinkable thought for the vast majority of political leaders in the United States. So, yeah, no, there, there's a lot there. And I uh, I also appreciate you mentioning, since I don't treat it as much in the book, I will say if any of our listeners do have a chance to read the book, you'll notice it's a fairly long book. Uh, well, the first draft of it, when I finished it and sent off to my publisher, was 100,000 words longer and was going to be about 1,100 pages. My my editor yeah, said, in yeah. Bowdoin, you can't do a book this long. <laughs> you know? um, and so 
uh, I had to cut out quite a bit, including a couple of chapters uh, on Reagan's background in the 1960s yeah. and 70s. So, um, but I'm, I'm glad we have a chance to discuss it here. So two very formative experiences for Reagan in his early worldview uh, are World War II and then uh, his early fight against communists in Hollywood in the late 1940s and 50s. Uh, and even though because of his poor eyesight, he did not serve in combat during the war, uh, you know, stateside, he was making training films, but he was uh, very much committed to the war effort. And he saw that, uh, you know, one of his a couple of his lessons of World War II is the United States cannot be isolationist. We cannot sit back and hope the world goes goes our way. And we need to be confident in our values in fighting against totalitarianism. And so he draws a very direct thread from Nazi Germany to Soviet communism, right? He sees Nazism and communism as essentially of a piece. And there is a perverse continuity there. But then, as you mentioned, when he is uh, still more of a labor union Democrat in Hollywood in the late 40s and early 50s, Communists are infiltrating the labor unions. It's you know, somewhat alarmist to our, our ears today, but it was absolutely true. And, and he saw you know, the perverse tactics they would use, and he would by then was aware of how evil Stalinism uh, was, and, and he fought very much against this. Even he was dealing with death threats. He had to sleep with a, a revolver next to his bed at night because of the, the death threats. is a very, very serious thing. And so that uh, early on galvanized him that the United States needed to stand firm uh, against this threat. And this is also when he starts doing some deeper reading, which, again, isn't fully appreciated. You know, in the 1950s, he reads Whitaker Chambers' classic Witness about Chambers' turn away from communism. Is you know, obviously a great book, a very, very long one, um, but very formative for Reagan. And he would quote pass. He has a photographic memory and he would quote passages from uh, Witness from memory, you know, decade, decade, decades later. And so there's this really important formation of his worldview about America's you know, role on the globe, um, the threat of totalitarian ideologies. Uh, and that you see that play out, you know, 30 some years later when he's now in the White House leading the free world. Yeah. You know, um, when Reagan's elected office in 1980, after having previously served as a, a governor of California, deposing the incumbent Pat Brown and then being reelected by massive margin. Uh, and, and then, you know, there are years in which, like I say, he runs for the presidency for the Republican nomination in 1976 and doesn't get it, becomes incredibly close. And then he becomes the man. For 1980, but opposed by the Republican Party establishment until he he gains the nomination and then he, yeah. he reshapes that establishment. But yeah. you look at all that and you recognize, you know, th this is this is not an inevitability in terms of politics. You know, the election yeah. of Ronald Reagan was disruptive in the extreme mm -hmm. and to the foreign policy establishment. It was it was the greatest threat they had faced because they accused him of being a Manichaean. You know, the, the ancient uh, uh, philosophy where everything's just divided into black and white, uh, and there's more to Manichaeanism than that. But the, the, the argument was he's a rube. He, he's, a, he's a dangerous man. He's an extremist. And yet, you know, he, he, it turns out that he would, there's a lot more to him than people thought. You may remember the old Saturday Night Live skit that was so famous in which, you know, there's a foreign policy crisis and, you know, Reagan is, is in the White House and he's in the Oval Office and he just bumbles around like some kind of, you know, fool. Uh, and then once the uh, everybody is out of the office except his central team, he he turns into a, a military genius, pulls down maps and starts doing you know the, the barking yeah. orders and all this. Speaks the, the in reality multiple is, foreign languages. Yeah, yeah. The the, the 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 reality is something in the midst. But he was a serious man of ideas, and I think that's one of the greatest achievements of your book. Um, you you deal with his limitations, you deal with his errors, but you treat him as a serious man of ideas in a world of a conflict of ideas. 
Thanks. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you, you picked that up because it is really central to understand the Reagan presidency and, and the book. And I think it's been you know somewhat underappreciated or neglected by uh, by, by other scholars. Uh, and one area I want to highlight where you re- can really see Reagan as this man of ideas is his speeches. Uh, and you know, yes, he had some very talented speechwriters working for him, but all of them will tell you, and I've verified this in archives, on his most important speeches, Reagan was writing most of it himself, right? I mean, you know, he would do you know lengthy first drafts on his legal pads by hand. Uh, he would do, you know, lengthy, detailed edits of each draft his speechwriter was giving him. And of course, each speechwriter saw their role as helping channel Reagan's voice anyway. And so if you, you know, and I highlight a number of these in the book, but if you look at some of his most notable speeches, I won't quote all of them because of time, but, you know, Notre Dame, 1981, um, Westminster, 1982, uh, NAE, um, Evil Empire, 1983, uh, Boys of Point to Hawk, 1984, Tear Down This Wall, I could go on. If you read them in sequence, you see there a sustained argument that he is making about the illegitimacy and the evil of Soviet communism and the virtues of the free world in, in contrast. And, and so that's why some of the more memorable phrases, the West won't contain communism, it will transcend it as some bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being written. You know, Marxism, Leninism will end up on the ash heap of history. Uh, you know, the aggressive impulses of an evil empire. Um, so and so forth. Those are not just vivid turns of phrase or campaign lines. Those are, like I said, part of this um, well-developed worldview and a sustained argument he is making against Soviet communism. And uh, no previous president had spoken that way before. Uh, but this is, again, part of the, the Reagan, Reagan revolution. Uh, and again, he got a lot of criticism for those speeches at the time. But in hindsight, uh, you can see that he knew exactly what he was doing. And he, yeah. was, he was quite right. I want to come back to uh, one of those speeches in a moment, but I, I, w- I want to ask you something. It's, it's one of the great intellectual questions I have in looking at, at all of this. And uh, so let's just say that two things are happening at the same time. And, and one thing was the ascendancy of the United States in terms of assertiveness and uh, I'd say clarity in foreign policy under Ronald Reagan. In retrospect, the other thing that was taking place was unknown even to American uh, intelligence agencies in terms of its scope. And that was the, uh, the fragility of the Soviet Union economically yes. and politically. And, yes. and so, you know, it, it appeared to be the coming thing, uh, but was actually the, you know, just collapsing under its own inability to function. So I just want to ask you, you know, how do those two things come together? And it's not even clear that Ronald Reagan saw it as you know, as weak as it was, he was just convinced that it was evil and had to be defeated. How do those two things come together? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important part of the story. And, uh, you know, in, in this where I like doing history, because in hindsight, we can look back and see how some of those threads come together, even if it wasn't fully clear to everyone at the time, as, as you as you lay out. And I do want to say, well, my, you know, my book focuses on Reagan, his leadership, his ideas, his policies. I try to make clear that this is occurring against the, the context of shifts in the geopolitical order, the communications revolution, the democratic revolution, uh, what we now know is some of the decrepitude of Soviet communism. But Reagan is also paying attention to these global shifts, these structural trends, and he's trying to harness and accelerate them and and have the United States uh, lead them. Um, So particularly on this very important question about the fragility and vulnerability of the of the Soviet system, as you point out, very few experts saw this at the time. I, I cite this abundantly in my book, you know, this foreign affairs article written by two Ivy League Sovietologists in late 1982 
uh, you know, page after page denouncing Reagan's foreign policies and making clear the Soviet Union will be with us for generations to come. You know, it's strong and stable. And or durable. seven years. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, I know exactly how wrong they were. Uh, it, numerous, not to take cheap shots at CIA, which does a lot of great things during the Cold War, but numerous CIA assessments on up through 1987-88 saying the Soviet economy is stable and durable and it's growing, you know, sufficiently and, you know, they're not going to go away for, for generations either. And so this is the expertise that Reagan has been confronted with and he, he doesn't buy it. And you know, one of the puzzles is why. And there's two important things here on how he sees the vulnerability of of the Soviet system much sooner than most. First is, again, borrowing here from your excellent book on leadership, he is a convictional leader, right? He is a convictional president who starts off with some of these first principles about uh, the superiority of free markets to a command economy, the superiority of democracy and self-governance to authoritarian dictatorship, uh, the virtues of religious faith over atheism, and that starting with those convictions, that just gives him a different worldview lens through which to view things. And he looks at Soviet communism and he just thinks this is so contrary to human dignity, to how, frankly, God created and ordered the world that it just can't continue forever. Right? It just it, it's, it's almost an article of faith for him. And I mean that in the best sense of the term. But also because he is a original thinker, because he does not get trapped by establishment wisdom, he and because he's very interested in the individual human condition throughout the 70s and his time as president, he's constantly seeking out meetings with accounts from people who have survived and fled from Soviet communism. He wants to hear what is life really like behind that system. And so he'll read a CIA or Soviet expert assessment saying the Soviet economy is strong, but then he'll meet with some former Soviet dissidents who tell him red lines are miles long. Uh, this system can't feed our, its own people. We hate our government because it keeps lying to us about everything. And so he almost develops his own intelligence sources, if you will, if people have actually lived under this system. And he is hearing a very different reality from them, which aligns, which reinforces his own convictions and may go against the, the ex expert class opinion. And so he thinks, all right, I want to push on this. I think that this system is a lot more fragile and vulnerable uh, then, then expert opinion is is telling me, and and I want I want to push forward on that, even if he may not have been able to predict chapter and verse on when and how it would all all fall apart. Although even there, I'll give him a little more credit. There's I you know tell in the book in um, April of 1982, Reagan chairs a National Security Council meeting with his team, saying, "All right, I want I want to put together and implement my my strategy to confront the Soviet Union here." And he had talked to one of his top aides, Tom Reed, and you know Tom starts the meeting by saying, "All right, gentlemen, I've talked to the president." And we believe that the next 10 years are going to be decisive in the Cold War, and it's going to fundamentally change. And we are here to encourage the dissolution, the dissolving of the Soviet empire. That is in April of 1982. And they're off by three months because it's December of 1991, nine years and nine months later that the Soviet Union does collapse. And so I even want to give Reagan a little more credit for foresight there um, than, than is common, commonly appreciated. Okay, so I, I'm going to uh, uh, pose a question that has been associated with uh, the late Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy, a lion of, of liberalism. And, uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, he supposedly asked the question, you know, which is better, smart or stupid? And, uh, you know, I, I need to translate this. That's, I, I love the question because its answer is not as obvious as you might think. And, and you know, Ted Kennedy and I are in different worlds, but, and our definitions of smart and stupid might be different too. But, you know, it's kind of, Isaiah Berlin's Hedgehog and the Fox, you know, Reagan 
Reagan was very much uh, looking at the big landscape. Others, others, frankly, had the details down better than he did. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but that wasn't what he saw. He, he saw clearly the uh, fragility of the Soviet Union, first of all, because it was a lie. Yes, and, yes. And held together only by force. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were limitations to this. I mean, that's why you need an administration. You served in the national mm-hmm. security uh, and foreign policy apparatus at high levels in an administration. So talk to me as an insider into that world in a Republican uh, or more than one Republican administration. How exactly does the president exercise his will through a recalcitrant foreign policy establishment? Yeah, no. And this is, again, as you rightly point out, it's another big theme of the book, because, you know, while I'm I think it's very clear Reagan is a man of ideas, you know, he's not an intellectual. He wouldn't tell you he is right. That's not a criticism. um, And he's also not uh, interested in the details of management. He's not a micromanager. This was, of course, one of Jimmy Carter's you know, failings as president. It's too much of yeah, too much of a micromanager. And so Reagan sees his job as setting the clear big picture strategic vision and priorities and hiring good people to help uh, implement those. Uh, And, you know, some of the people he hires initially, uh, you know, Al Haig, for example, his first secretary of state. They don't don't work out so well, right? Um, but uh, and and on, on, and at times, you know, Reagan uh, is too inattentive to details, and that leads to you know certainly some of the some of the problems that his administration faces. I'm clear about those in the book. But at the end of the day, he has some very capable people working for him who are more attentive to the details. So Bill Clark, his second national security advisor, who I try to make a case for as an underappreciated great of the administration. Uh, Bill Casey, the you know controversial, but I think very effective CIA director. Cap Weinberger, expert manager of the Pentagon and the, the Reagan defense buildup and modernization. That takes incredible attention to detail. And, and Weinberger really, really had that um, down to the minutia of the defense budget. Uh, and, and I, you know, try to make a strong case, especially for George Schultz, his secretary of state, who is very faithful to Reagan's strategic vision in the Cold War, uh, but also former CEO of Bechtel, former secretary of the Treasury, former OMB director, very attentive to management details. And Schultz takes Reagan's strategic vision, uh, particularly for the negotiations part with the Soviet Union, uh, and implements that that pretty well. And so where Reagan would set that clear strategic vision, he did have a very capable team helping him implement it, even if they were bickering and feuding with each other quite a bit, too. So Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The, uh, the old order Reaganites would not speak of George Schultz with so much appreciation as you just did. Um, and, and I was going to ask you two questions about George Schultz as soon as you mentioned his name anyway. And, and so let me just ask you, what's your evaluation of George Schultz? And, and, you know, he was the secretary of state who really became the extension, some would argue, and others would argue the, uh, the compromise of Reagan and uh, Reaganism in terms of American foreign policy. Yeah, no, I have a very favorable assessment of Schultz overall. And, you know, I know, you know that'll obviously cause, cause some controversy in some circles. But, you know, a couple things there. First, I make a case, and readers can decide if they think I get this right or wrong, that Schultz is best understood as a true conservative. You know, I mean, and I'll just give a few examples here, right? He is much more supportive of Israel uh, than than Weinberger is over of the Pentagon, for example. Schultz is much more committed to robust support, uh, promotion of freedom, particularly for um, uh, Christian and Jewish dissidents behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, he really channels Reagan, Reagan on that in ways that, you know, some of the folks at the Pentagon were, you know, less, less focused on obviously, on, on human rights and religious freedom. Uh, Schultz is much more assertive against terrorism. Schultz much more believes in, you know, sure, Schultz wanted to negotiate. He wanted to do diplomacy, but he's very clear diplomacy only 
works if it's backed by force. And even though Schultz had his differences with Weinberger, you know, between state and Pentagon, they always agreed on a very strong and high military budget, right? Schultz was, you know, as a, as you know, as Secretary of State, he wanted the Pentagon to have as large a budget as, as possible. Um, you know, there were a few places, you know, uh, some of the Central America stuff where he would maybe take a little bit more of a, a, a moderate line, and a couple of others we could we could point to. But um, I actually think that uh, he is essential for helping implement Reagan's strategic vision of pressure and diplomacy with the Soviets, you know, especially when, you know, that's an important part of Reagan too, is those negotiations. Um, and I think there's a real consistent through line of, of conservatism uh, there. So I'm, uh, you know, without, you know, shying away from Schultz's faults and liabilities. Um, yeah. I have, I have a favorable take on him. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things he did was to appear bland and to be satisfied with that. Whereas he had, you know, the incredible personal magnetism of Ronald Reagan on the other hand. So yeah. in one sense, you can even see how that came together. Uh, George yeah. Schultz was uh, trained as an academic, but he also mm -hmm. served as CEO of a multinational, you know, uh, corporation. Yeah, Bechtel. Um, he knew how to make things happen. Yes. And, and Reagan needed him. And I want to ask you about one of the uh, one of the ideas associated with George Schultz, which is the simultaneity mm. of events. Mm. And, yes. uh, and 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 Schultz had a, an intellectual way of understanding that there are political opportunities and responsibilities that will only happen right now. Yes. So can you talk about that just a bit? Yes. And this, I appreciate bringing this up because this is two important threads in the book. I mean, the first is, even though the main theme of the book, of course, is Reagan's Cold War strategy. As you know, I talk a lot about Middle East policy and counterterrorism right. and Asia and trade policy and everything because presidents don't have the luxury of only choosing which issue they want to focus on. You know, their inbox is dealing with dozens, hundreds of difficult decisions every day uh, and, and global crises. And uh, and so Reagan was also having to manage all of those while still fulfilling his Cold War vision. And that's partly where I do draw on my experience as a policymaker when I was working for, you know, President Bush seeing, uh, you know, sure, we've got our big picture priorities, you know, war on terrorism, the Iraq, Afghanistan, but all sorts of other crazy things coming coming in as well that presidents have to manage. Um, but the other thing with, with what Schultz was getting at with simultaneity of, of events is he and Reagan really saw the Cold War in the 1980s as a global set of challenges and opportunities. And this is why they try to expand the Cold War chessboard, particularly into Asia. And, you know, they are very committed to transforming the U.S.-Japan relationship from primarily an economic rivalry to now a strategic partnership. That's a strategic play they're making because they want to bring more pressure on the Soviet Union on, you know, and, and the Soviets, the Soviets Eastern Front, essentially, like the Soviet Soviet Far, far East. Um, uh, and that's uh, and so when they're looking at trade tensions with Japan as a, you know, it's not just a political challenge. They see it as an opportunity to, to re regain, regain the initiative there. Some, uh, uh, you know, similarly with um, what they are trying to do with managing the communications revolution saying, all right, well, how can we leverage, you know, our new advantages and global uh, uh, communications and, and microchips and things like that? Well, let's take what's going on in Silicon Valley and let's use that to America's advantage in bolstering the next generation of weapons systems. Um, uh, and, so that we will not just outbuild the Soviets, but outsmart them too, right? So they're taking what seem to be economic and technological developments uh, in the Western world, especially in Silicon Valley, and using those for geopolitical ends. And so that that's where there's a lot more strategic sophistication, I think, in agency and leadership going on than had been previously appreciated. Well, let's talk about the simultaneity of events with the simultaneity of people. And so it's not just inside the American government, not just in the Reagan administration, the rather amazing cast of characters who were assembled there. 
It is Ronald Reagan and John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher, just to mention three, arriving on the world scene at the same time. Yes. Yes. And this is where another key to understanding Reagan is he is deeply committed to America's allies. Uh, and this goes back to those formative years in World War II. He he self-consciously wants to you know recreate the grand alliance of the free world fighting against uh, totalitarianism. Um, and he sees America's allies as a you know, key asymmetric source of strength, a key advantage. He knows that the Soviet Union doesn't have any real allies. It has, you know, coerced vassal states, imperial properties, if you will, in the in the, in the Warsaw right. Pact and and their other communist satellites around the world. Uh, whereas, you know, Reagan sees the United States as at the center of this hub of of, uh, of alliances with our fellow market democracies. Uh, and so he starts with that. But then individual leaders matter so much to him, too. And he had first met Margaret Thatcher when she was the leader of the conservative opposition in the UK. I want to see either 1977 or 78. Um, I don't it in the book. Um, he had, of course, taken real notice uh, when the pope is, uh, is you know, selected as the, the first Polish Polish pope, you know, a staunch anti-communist uh, with his homeland of Poland uh, occupied by the Soviet Union. Uh, and so Reagan invests quite a bit in these in these friendships with Thatcher and the pope and others. Uh, 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 Nakasone of Japan, Brian Mulroney of Canada, Helmut Kohl of West West Germany, all in their different ways committed to market economies and democracy at home and strong anti-communism abroad. And so these other leaders share Reagan's values, um, but also look to him as the leader of the free world alliance, if you will, the, uh, and uh, based on those shared values and, and shared interests. And so it's not by accident, right? You know, the time he spends investing in those relationships uh, and the countries that they stand for pays tremendous dividends for the United States. And you know, I go into it in the book, there's a few, he gets Japan to triple its defense spending over, over his eight years of credit, triple it. It, it. It's amazing, right? You know, we're always rightly frustrated that our allies aren't doing enough on burden sharing. He gets uh, Germany and the United Kingdom to agree to allow American nuclear missiles to be based on their soil because it's key to countering the Soviets. Thatcher and Cole risk their own re-election. They put their own political prospects on the line because they are committed to Reagan and, and, and the United States. Uh, of course, he builds a very effective partnership with the Pope and supporting religious freedom and you know solidarity in, in Poland behind the Iron Curtain, too. Uh, so this, this is not by accident. I mean, sure, uh, the hand of providence, I suppose, is there in the coming to power of these different leaders, but Reagan also recognizes it and embraces them. Yeah, and looking backwards, which is always the easiest way to yeah. look, yeah. Uh, looking backwards, some of this looks almost inevitable, but none of it was. Yeah. You know, as, as yeah. you're looking at this, uh, the election of John Paul II as Pope, that's a story, you know, inside the, uh, the clouds of Catholic mystery, but uh, there hadn't been such a, such a thing. <laughs> there hadn't yeah. been such a Pope ever. Yeah. Uh, and, and so he had seen communism in terms of all of its brutality uh, there in Poland. And so, he, and of course, he would later write the encyclical, The Splendor of Truth. He, he saw the great battle in the world between truth and falsehood. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, even as an evangelical, I have to say, he helped to shift the intellectual landscape uh, of the 20th century. Ronald Reagan came along talking about the evil empire. And, and, you know, maybe his view is a little too simplistic in terms of the goodness of the United States, I'll say as a Christian theologian. But when it came to the distinction between the United States and the Soviet Union, he was as clear-eyed as could be and was, yeah. you know, furious at American intellectuals and the, the cultural elites for confusing it. Yeah. And, uh, and Margaret Thatcher, who I actually got to spend some time with, uh, far more, even than Reagan at first, you know, uh, is willing to go on the line. 
uh, about the great threat uh, of of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So was any of this inevitable? Uh, you know, yeah. the, I, don't, I don't mean to ask that in terms of God's providence. Yeah, uh, we, 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 we will posit the sovereignty of God. But I mean, in terms of how you look at this as a national security expert, was any of this um, inevitable? Yeah, I would not go so far as to say inevitable, um, but but I do think we can now look back and see some of these broader global trends in the 1970s producing some frustration and, if you will, almost a kind of a mini crisis in the free world of realizing the 1970s model isn't working, right? So the, you know, the... Uh, the more statist economic systems that the, the United Kingdom embraced in the 1970s, right? You know, the, the big welfare state there, uh, really high taxes, high regulation. Uh, uh, similarly, that uh, the Social Democrats who had been in charge of West Germany in the 1970s and, and early 80s. Um, uh, and so so just as the United States had our own economic malaise and stagnation in the 1970s, you know, I think there's kind of across the, the democratic world, there was a something of a growing backlash among a lot of voters saying, all right, the other way of doing this, this hand of big government and regulation just isn't working for our economies. And oh, by the way, we seem to be losing against communism too, right? Uh, And so in that sense, you can see a convergence here, but still it takes some of these inspired leaders uh, coming along. And you went on the providential part and going back to, you know, taking Reagan seriously as a a Christian, um, the other bond he has with the Pope, of course, is they both survive assassination attempts within two months, right? You know, Reagan in March of 81, the Pope in May of 81. And, and Reagan, you know, writes in his diary that he thinks God spared him uh, in, in parts that he can end the Cold War, right? I mean, he has a very clear sense of providentialism. And I, as a Christian myself, I would, you know, certainly affirm that. Obviously, you know, the, you know, the mind of God is is mysterious. We only know fully once we're before the throne. But um, I think I find that a, you know, very understandable reading because it's, as you know, Reagan comes very close to dying. And so when he first meets the Pope, you know, the the next year when Reagan travels to Europe, they bond right away over, hey, we both survived near-death experiences from assassins. And um, let's make the moat, let's number our remaining days and let's make bringing down Soviet communism uh, the first the first task there. So, yeah, so I'm certainly comfortable speaking of, uh, you know, the, the hand of providence at, at work yeah. uh, in that respect. You introduced a term earlier in your book. I want you to define it now. Hindsight bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, you know, I just made a passing reference to this er- earlier, but um, now that we know the Cold War ended peacefully, that the world wasn't destroyed in nuclear war, that the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, um, there's a you know, sense you know, among some scholars and ordinary citizens, well, of course, that would happen indefinitely, right? And I think that's, you know, the bias of hindsight, because at the time, it did not look so clear at all. And I do think history potentially could have turned out some different ways. I mean, if there would have been a second term of Jimmy Carter, for example, I, you know, not a president I hold in very, very high esteem, but very different from Ronald Reagan, right? He would have taken things in some different directions. Um, and even if, uh, you know, uh, we haven't mentioned Mikhail Gorbachev a whole lot yet, but let's say if the Soviet Union had never selected Gorbachev as the, you know, the final, the final leader there, if they'd stuck with another hardliner, I don't know how it would have ended up. You know, maybe there would have been a you know a higher risk of a of a nuclear war. As you know from the book, I do give Reagan a little more credit than is commonly appreciated, even for the coming to power of Gorbachev, because part of Reagan's strategy from the beginning is pressure the Soviet system, not just to weaken it, but to produce a reformist leader. Uh, and so even there, I give him a little more credit for foresight in 
you know, embracing Gorbachev as a reformer because Reagan had been pressuring them to produce such a just just such a leader. But um, but none of this was inevitable. And and that hindsight bias, I think, can cloud our vision to just how fraught and terrifying and risky yeah. uh, and yet remarkable those those days were. You know, you look at the Soviet Union, I think the average person uh, not only has hindsight bias, has hindsight ignorance. And so if you look back, you know, and you pointed out early on that many people, you know, who be listening to this weren't even alive when these things took place. But, yeah. you know, the Soviet Union is this massive political fact. It's an ideological force. It is an atheistic regime. It is imperialistic in its ambitions. But it is gerontological in its leadership, and especially in the Politburo. They produce these leaders. And, you know, at one point, uh, there were three Soviet leaders at the very pinnacle who died within basically three successive years. In fact, yeah. Reagan was criticized for not meeting with them. He said, I'd like to meet with them. They keep dying on me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. now know, talk about hindsight, we now know that Gorbachev came to the top of the Soviet leadership, largely out of desperation. They just didn't have anybody else. Yes, yes. And in, in some ways, I think those deaths in rapid succession of Brezhnev and then Andropov and then Chernyanko it kind of symbolizes the decay and decrepitude of the entire system, yeah. right? That the only ones they could turn to as leaders are these, you know, old men who are old and infirm physically, but also kind of, you know, Stalinist or 1950s in their thinking, right. you know, exactly. a little more nuanced perhaps with, with, with Andropov. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they, they, they keep dying. Uh, and, uh, and the Politburo itself, you know, feeling, so he's backed into a corner, feeling more and more pressure from Reagan, seeing the, the, uh, the economy is not doing well, seeing that they are now starting to fall behind in the arms race with the United States. They turn to the younger generation. You know, Gorbachev is you know about the only one they, they, they see as viable when they select him in March of 1985. And, and again, Reagan himself would give Gorbachev tremendous credit. I, too, in the book, uh, he, he's an important diplomatic partner for Reagan. Uh, and Gorbachev is very courageous in some key decisions he, he makes about winding down tensions. But it needs to be said, Reagan and Gorbachev ultimately have very different goals. Reagan's goal is to end Soviet communism, and Gorbachev's goal is to preserve it. He wants to reform it, but he wants to preserve it. And that's why even though they forge a real friendship and partnership, and there's that I find very touching scene towards the end and one of their last summits when Reagan is making personal entreaties to Gorbachev to believe in God, to renounce his atheism, right? I mean, and Reagan's doing that in private because he genuinely cares for this, this man, but it also symbolizes fundamentally different worldviews and fundamentally fundamentally different different goals. And that's where their their paths do do go in different directions. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of work on Gorbachev right now uh, being done and, and recent books. And a lot of good archival evidence. And one of the things that becomes abundantly clear, in fact, you don't even have to do that. You can just look at the, you know, the archives of the New York Times or another major newspaper. Gorbachev is very much uh, seeking to preserve the Soviet Union up until the very end. He, he, he sets loose forces of reform that he can't stop. And eventually yes. events roll out. And, and yet, and you make this clear and some others do as well. He makes the very courageous decision not to go to war to save the Soviet Union. Yes, yes. And that's where, you know, for our, you know, particularly our, our younger, younger listeners, uh, you may not be so familiar with Cold War history. Um, the Soviet doctrine for the you know, previous decades has been called the Brezhnev doctrine, which is that 
once we have, you know, as Charles Krauthammer put it, once a Soviet possession, always a Soviet possession. So that's why in 1956 in Hungary, when there had been a revolt by the Hungary carrying people wanting their freedom, the Soviets sent in the tanks and crush them. In 1968 in Czechoslovakia, uh, again, um, a revolt seeking seeking freedom and the Soviets send in the tanks to, to crush them. Uh, and this was the real worry that as the peoples of Eastern Europe start, uh, you know, tearing down the Berlin Wall, demanding free elections, uh, and even the people's Soviet system itself, that Gorbachev would take that page out of the old Soviet playbook, follow their doctrine, send in the tanks and crush them. And he makes the you know the courageous decision to relinquish the Brezhnev doctrine, to repudiate it, and say no, we have to let we have to let people go go their own way. It's it's not what he wanted necessarily, but that decision not to use force. And so in some ways, some of Gorbachev's most important decisions are what he decides not to do, rather than what he decides to do. Right. I didn't ask you uh, into this conversation to to pose this issue, but to some extent, is Vladimir Putin and his notion of greater Russia and mother Russia, is he hearkening back to something like the Brezhnev doctrine that Ukraine, having once been part of of the Russian Empire, has to eventually remain in the Roman Empire, in the Russian Empire? Yes, that that seems that seems to be it. And again, going back to understanding leaders that are formative years. Remember, Putin's formative years are as a KGB agent stationed there in East Germany, and right. you know, he sees the horrifying come down. Yeah, yeah, and he's horrified at this, right? And so, uh, so as I you know said in another context, if you want to understand Putin's goal right now in just one picture, take a map of the old Soviet Union, look at the borders of the old Soviet Union, and that is what Putin wants to recreate. And that, of course, includes you know, uh, the Baltics, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. It includes Georgia, which he invaded in 2008. And it very much includes Ukraine, which he has more, more recently in, invaded. Um, and so it's this perverse combination of his hearkening back to the uh, glory days of the 19th century czars and what he saw as the height of power and the height of Soviet control of that vast swath of the Soviet empire. Uh, and so it's, um, and he's, you know, that said this pretty explicitly but before. So it's um uh it's a rather perverse use of history, but it's key to understanding him. Well, obviously I have tremendous admiration for Ronald Reagan. I am also a Christian theologian who uh understands in a biblical and Augustinian worldview that uh, we have to take human beings whole. And looking at Ronald Reagan, there were massive mistakes as well as massive achievements. Yeah. And uh, at one point his administration nearly tanks over what was known as the uh, Iran Contra. Uh, crisis. And uh, and that was at least largely an issue of his responsibility, if not by yeah. action, then by inaction. Yeah. But it leads me to just want to ask a question. He, he, obviously, I believe that in the day, he was one of the most consequential presidents in all of American history and, and absolutely for good. But it leads me to a very Christian question. How do you evaluate these characters who ride astride history? Mm. Yeah. And and this is where while I, you know, go into great obviously detail in the book on his his policies and, and his thinking and his strategy and also on his failings. You know, this is not a hagiography. I I don't don't believe that in that as a Christian or as a historian. Um as a 
you know, fellow Christian historian once said uh, of our work, we are historians of secondary causes, meaning at the end of the day, I do, of course, I, I very much believe as a Christian that the hand of God is writing history, and we may not always know the clear script, right? And so there still is, you know, some some mystery within this. But from what we do know from the historical record, I still think there's a pretty you know, remarkable story story to tell here. Uh, uh, and, and Reagan himself has, I think he meant this in a humble sense, a deep awareness of the responsibilities of the office. He knows that, uh, you know, the role of government is ordained by God, that leaders come to power through, you know, the certainly the the, the will and, and sovereignty of God. And in Reagan's mind, that's not a grandiose sense of superiority. It's a very humbling stewardship. And, uh, and he's very clear that, you know, this is just a stewardship he inherits for a time and he's going to do do his best with it and that you know this is why he prays very regularly and he you know certainly is seeking god's guidance for these awesome responsibilities and on the flaws just because you mentioned them and again readers will see i don't really pull any punches about these in the book i mean his middle east policy is a mess at times iran contra is a I try to provide some context. There's more to understand about it, but it's still a very low spot in his presidency on which he bears responsibility. But any great leader, not named Jesus Christ, you know, has deep flaws. And Churchill, you know, had, you know, these, better not do, had, had Gallipoli, right? I mean, had, you know, you know, many, many mistakes, including strategic, strategic mistakes in, in, in World War II. But I think in a human sense, we better understand a leader's greatness if we see it alongside the flaws, right? So again, one of Reagan's greatest moments as president is when he stands at the Brandenburg Gate in June of 1987 and says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I think we appreciate that even more when you look and understand his approval rating at the time was maybe 35% at home. He had still was, you know, coming out of the lowest point of his presidency with the Iran-Contra scandal, which was largely his fault. And so, you know, to use the sports analogy, he was the boxer who had been knocked down uh, and, and he gets up off the mat and he's still he's still bloodied. He's still a little weary, but he regains the initiative in the Cold War. And he has that tremendous moment at, at, at the Berlin Wall. And so it's great in its own right. But I think we can appreciate even more that it, it's coming out of you know, major mistakes and uh, and calamities that he, he had inflicted. And that's yeah, that's also a real hallmark of, of leadership. It's not being perfect. It's how do you deal with your flaws and imperfections? And it's a demonstration of courage in in so many ways because yeah. Ronald Reagan yeah. knows he's he's standing astride world history. This is where, when the Berlin Wall was uh, new, uh, President John F. Kennedy, you know, famously stood in front of the same wall and said, "Ich bin ein Berliner," yeah. uh, identifying with the people. But uh, but Reagan and, and what we now know, and you know this far better than uh, than I do in terms of the details, but Reagan was opposed by his own foreign policy establishment and his own speech writing team in putting that line in. Yeah. And, yeah, and they again, thought they had an they thought they had a, an agreement that he wouldn't do it, but he did it. Yes. Yes, it's a great case. And I'm glad you brought up that word courage. I, I you know wish I would have brought that up sooner in the conversation because that's also key to understanding him and, and throughout his presidency or even the, the 1970s, as we talked about, you know, the courage to challenge conventional wisdom, the courage to be unpopular. Right. I mean, he stands up for free trade in the 1980s when, you know, his own party and the Democrats were very much uh, very much against it. But on that the Berlin Wall speech. Yeah, it's um, his secretary of state is against it. His national security advisor is against it. You know, all of the experts are telling him you can't 
can't say that, Mr. President, it's too provocative. It'll it'll embarrass Gorbachev. It's delusional. That wall is never never coming down. And Reagan, uh, you know, and his you know speechwriter Peter Robinson, who's who's a friend and you know should get some credit here too. Reagan keeps saying, "I want that line in," and he says, "Look, I'm the president. I can decide, right?" Uh, and so uh, another moment of his convictions, his leadership, uh, his decisiveness. Uh, play a, you know, no other, I don't think any other president would, would, would have done that. And, and, it, and it's really one of the most dramatic moments in the 20th century. One of the most dramatic moments in my life, and theologically, um, one of the most significant moments, in, and just in thinking of Christian truth, the flow of world history, is uh, standing, as I have now many times, uh, on that line where the Berlin Wall once stood. And remembering that for a Christian, there are no historical inevitabilities except the lordship of Jesus Christ and his sure and coming kingdom. Um, when it comes to human experience, there are no inevitabilities. And uh, it is a, a matter of the clash of ideas. And it mattered not just in terms of world history and not just in terms of geopolitics and the map, it mattered in terms of who lived and who died and whether or not a repressive, murderous state an empire would remain in power. And that line, as you know, and those bricks going right uh, through the heart of Berlin, it's just a reminder that there once was one of the ugliest human constructions of all time, a deadly wall where people were shot just trying to escape a, a repressive regime. History matters. Yeah. No, and that really goes back to what we were talking about with Reagan's worldview, too. So there's a very important moment in 1978 when he's preparing to run for president again, but he's, you know, he's out of office and he's traveling the world to uh, stay abreast of, of, of world events. And he visits Berlin and it's his first time visiting Berlin. And he is standing in West Berlin, but looking out over the wall. Uh, and while they're there, he sees the Stasi, the East German secret police, grab some young East German man and, you know, haul him into a store for, for an interrogation. They, they don't shoot him necessarily. But Reagan's looking at the wall. He sees the secret police. And, and again, it it uh, captures his sense of empathy, but also it so violates his own convictions. He said there is something fundamentally wrong about a society that builds a wall to imprison its own people. You know, it's it's not about, you know, immigration debates now. This is not a wall to keep others out. It's a wall to imprison the people of East Germany and keep them from getting their own freedom. And that's why he later says when he's asked about the wall in 1982, it's as ugly as the idea behind it. Right. So the wall itself is a monstrosity. But for him, it encapsulates the whole idea of communism, of imprisoning your 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 own people. Um, and so I hope our listeners do have a chance to, to visit Berlin and see see where it was. If you can't at least go to the Reagan Library in Southern California. California, they've got a, a, a chunk of the wall there. You know, I took our young son there a number of years ago and took a photo of myself in front of him so he can, you know, he, he can know it as well. Uh, this was real, friends. This was part of human history. Uh, and and many others in the foreign policy establishment thought that we just need to accept it and it'll be there forever. And again, it takes that very courageous visionary president to, to demand otherwise. That is part of the biblical worldview to know that walls can come down. Yes, yes, Let's just put it that so, way. Yes, yeah. that's right. So, yeah, sorry. Going back to Jericho and all the way forward to, uh, to, to Berlin. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah. Will Imboden, uh, I'm so thankful for your work and uh, thankful for this work. I just want you to know that if I didn't know you, uh, this would have been one of my favorite books uh, of, of, this, uh, of this year. I'm thankful I do. And I thank you for joining me for thinking in public. And I want to end by asking you a question. What's coming next? 
Oh, I'm I'm working on a few possible ideas. So yeah, I um uh yeah. I'm I'm still uh kind of recovering from the process of this one. It was a pretty taxing one, but um uh one possibility is a uh, a history of the US UK, the British American special relationship. Um another one might be a deeper biography of of George Schultz. Uh, so I'm I'll be deciding by the summer I think what the next project is, but um I'm a uh, yeah, like I said, still recovering from this one. It was a, it was a, a wonderful labor of love, but it was yeah. a labor. So Okay, so all, all I want to say is I want to read the the pages that aren't in the book. Okay. All right. So the director's cut version. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Professor Will Inboden, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Many thanks to Professor Will Inboden for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find well over 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.